Chapter 21 The sky was overcast, but the rain had stopped, leaving the air fresh and perfumed. Bryant was in a buoyant mood, and he hummed to himself softly as he mashed some nokilia beans that Kawa had foraged. Though he knew not where they were at present, nor how far off course they had drifted by taking their subterranean route, he felt revitalized, and he was ready to start out again for Willowbrook at top speed. He paused at his chore, struck by an odd thought. Would it not be funny if some day people travelled under the ground to get where they're going, thus avoiding inclement weather, not to mention wild beasts? He pictured enormous tunnels, miles long, and wagon trains full of people rolling through them. He chuckled to himself, but of course no one would ever be so foolish as to travel in such a way. Perhaps then he thought, sitting back on his haunches, there would be expansive road systems that were wide enough for two or three wagons to travel abreast and these would have smaller roads leading on and off, with nearby inns and shops of all sorts to service people's needs. <laughs> Silly notion, he mused, shaking his head and returning to his chore. Good morrow to you, my lord, said Malady, rubbing the sleep from her eyes. Well, good morrow to you. I trust you slept well? Very well, except for when me nose clogged up. Night air always makes me nose clog up. Bryant smiled politely. Ah, yes, well, I've heard it does that from time to time. And then he went back to work. Malady ran her fingers through her tresses, frowning at all the loose hairs she collected. She glanced at the prince to see if he had noticed, but he was busy mashing the last of the beans. She leaned on her elbows and watched him for a while. He certainly is handsome, and I never seen such courage when dealing with that slimy creature. Hmm. I wonder what it would be like to be married to a prince. <laughs> now there's a cushy life for you, she thought, picturing herself bedecked in jewels and fine linen and gobbling sweetmeats. I could get used to that real easy. It was then the events of the previous day came back to her in a tumult of images. The gully, the mineshaft, the gemstone, the whirlpool, the cavern, the creature. Wait a minute, wait a minute, she told herself. Go back a bit, back to the whirlpool. Specifically, the moment when they were clinging to each other, when they thought they were going to die. Was she mad? Was it just in her head? Or did he really kiss her? And if he really kissed her, did she not really kiss him back? For as long as she could remember, she had thought of herself as a wife, as a mother. Recalling that kiss and the desperate moment they had shared, she suddenly thought of herself as a woman, a desirable woman. One with at least a few good years left. But then her conscience chided her, and she recalled that, in reality, only a few weeks had passed since Cleve's death. Is that all? thought the woman, amazed. So much had happened in that time. She had risked death so often, her life with Cleve now seemed to be nothing more than a distant part of her past. She pictured him alive, and in all his glory, swinging his axe upon the block. And instead of sadness, her heart filled with warmth in the same way it did when she thought of her parents, whose spirits had ascended to the gods long ago. Since she had never known the gods to return someone back to the living, she assumed Cleve was gone for good. So where did that leave her? Especially when the boys had grown up and gone off on their own. 
She sat up with her legs crossed before her. I gots to think of meself, don't I? Ain't nothing selfish about thinking that way. Cleve's dead, right? And life goes on, right? She looked at Bryant, who was walking toward her. And the prince has promised to take care of me, right? Here you go, said Bryant cordially, as he handed her a thin slab of bark with some brown paste on it. Why, thank you, my lord, said the woman, smiling. But you shouldn't be waiting on me. I should be waiting on you. What with you being royalty and all, and me your lowly commoner. Oh no, please don't think that way, said Bryant, frowning somewhat. I certainly don't. We've lived through far too many dangers to allow our stations to stand between us. I I dare say, despite everything we've been through, this is turning out to be a rather fruitful experience for me. I'm very glad we fell in together. She looked at him, confused. Fell in? Aye, at any other time our paths would not have crossed. We'd have lived our whole lives without once interacting. Yet instead, here we sit, having gained each other's trust and sharing a trencher of bean paste. Oh, how true, she replied smiling. But to herself she thought, what's he talking about? And I want to get to know you even better. And the boys too. Her heart fluttered, and suddenly, to her surprise, for it was a long time since she had felt such things, she was moist beneath her arms. Y you do? Of course, he pointed to her repast. I'm afraid that hasn't the best of taste, but eat what you can of it. Who knows when we'll come by our next meal? I'm sure my lord is an excellent provider. She looked at him with willing eyes. I certainly would have no trouble filling my pantry. Ah, yeah, yes, said the prince, suddenly uncomfortable. Well, uh, very glad you think so. It was then the events of the previous day came back to him in a tumult of images. The gully, the mine shaft, the gemstone, the whirlpool, the cavern, the creature. Wait a minute, wait a minute, he told himself. Go back a bit, back to the whirlpool. Specifically, the moment when they were clinging to each other, when they thought they were going to die. Was he mad? Was it just in his head? Or did he really kiss her? And if he really kissed her, why in the heaven's name did he do something like that? Are you all right, my lord? He broke from his thoughts. I... I I beg your pardon? What did you say? Are you all right, my lord? You've gone as white as a sheet. I have? I, I have? Brian busied himself with the paste. It must be because I have an empty stomach. Ah, uh, ah, uh, perhaps you'd better rouse the boys. She wrinkled her brow. Rouse the boys? Aye, yes. Get them up. Her smile collapsed, and she turned to her children, feeling vaguely resentful of them. All right, you kids, get up. They awoke with a start. Come on, come on, we ain't got all day. Here you go, lads, said the prince, the cheer returning to his voice. He handed them each a trencher of paste, something nourishing for those stomachs of yours. Denome looked at it and grimaced. This stuff looks like donkey puke. Eat it, ordered Malady. Denome shook his head firmly. I ain't eating donkey puke. You will, snapped Melody. And no more of them comments, neither. His lordship went to a lot of trouble making that for you. Oh, there you go again, complained Noam. Why do you keep calling him that? But she refused to answer him. And while the boys struggled with their portions and Brian's back was turned, she scraped off hers with two fingers and flicked it into the bushes. 
When they finished their repast, the boys helped Kawa douse the fire, then rolled their blankets and fell in line behind the prince. Below them was the great forest of Bandadon, stretching for miles in every direction. What say you to this, lads? called the prince over his shoulder. Have you ever seen anything quite so expansive? Bunch of trays is all, replied Noam. Nothing special about them. The little one spoke up in support of his brother. That's right. Seen one, seen them all. The air was full of moisture and pungent with the smell of pine wood needles and whispering ferns and climbing ivy. Though the sky above was a solid shade of grey, the forest floor was abundant with purple and fuchsia jump-ups, viridian clover, and cream-coloured tunias. Even the rocks and the boulders nestled here and there were covered by moss that boasted every shade of green. Overhead, birds with brilliant plumage flitted among the branches, chirping their individual songs. Everything about the lush scene seemed calm and peaceful, even well-ordered, and surrounded by such timelessness, Bryant was humbled and filled with awe. Thus occupied, he did not notice the blood-stained helmet lying in a patch of tall grass, or the cut-in-two sticking out of the ground, or the axe in the trunk of a nearby tree. He did not notice any of these things until he came to the top of a long rise. There he halted and signaled for the others to do the same. At the bottom of the rise he saw a road, and just beyond it lay a clearing. P.U., said the gnome, crinkling his nose. What's that smell? Brian recognized it at once. It was the stench of carrion flesh. The hairs on the back of his neck stood on end, and his stomach twisted into a knot. Stay here while I go have a look. Can I come? asked the little one. The prince drew his sword. No, and that's final. Why not? Because I said so. And including the others, he added, keep low and out of sight. Kawa spoke up, sounding greatly concerned. Are you sure? Perhaps I should go with you. Brian patted the retainer's shoulder. Stay with the others and keep them safe. I'll return shortly. Kawa's eyes remained fixed upon the prince as he descended to the road, all the while chewing on his lip and wringing his hands. Now you know how I feel, grumbled the gnome, watching the prince as well. The retainer looked down his nose at the boy. In your case, he was right to do it. Oh yeah? One day I'm gonna be a better fighter than him. Not if you die in the next few minutes. Now be a good lad and shut your mouth. The wind picked up its pace. And, along with the stench, there came a flapping sound. When Bryant entered the clearing, he saw at its center a plundered encampment. What were once campaign tents now were mere remnants, having been torn or burned to the ground. One in particular had a collapsed awning, and this snapped in a quarrelsome way every time the breeze disturbed it. Three wagons, all with either torn or burned canvas covers, stood end to end like an incomplete rampart. These were also badly charred. Though he already knew what to expect, it mattered not. When Brian discovered the first of the bodies, he came to a sudden halt. He grimaced, for it was badly decomposed. Its face had been ripped and chewed upon by the carrion eaters of the forest. He scanned the surrounding brush, looking for any movement. All was still. Haya! He called, waving his arms, and what seemed like hundreds of birds scattered into the air. This filled him with dread, for such a large gathering meant only one thing. Dozens lay dead within the clearing. 
He continued on, and the closer he came to the tent with the flap, the more bodies he happened upon. Though stained by their own blood, he could see many were dressed in chainmail and tunic, and from the castle embroidered on their chests, he knew at once he was staring down at a jasper in yeoman. He moved on, now with urgency in his step, finding more and more bodies in the tall grass. Scattered among them were noggin knockers and cutting tools, the characteristic weapons of the woolly bullies. This he found most perplexing. From time to time, a band of their misguided youth would break the truce and raid the frontier provinces, but he had never heard of them attacking so far south. He picked up a noggin knocker and examined it. Most peculiar, Brian thought. From the carvings on the shaft, he knew it belonged to a Highlander from the Shaggingoats clan of the Northside Mountains. The Shaggingoats, so named for their propensity to fornicate with livestock, were possibly the most barbaric of all the clans, and certainly the most deviant. He studied the field for any other signs, and shortly his eyes fell upon a small leather pouch. He picked it up and examined its contents finding three small bones, a handful of feathers, and some dried gizzards. It was a woolly bully billy bag, and its contents were often the representation of a clansman's spiritual beliefs, that or the remains of his lunch. How odd, thought the prince, studying the markings on it. This belongs to a zigzagger clansman, strange people who never walked in a straight line. But they live nowhere near the shaggin goats. Woolly bullies were notoriously territorial. They disliked each other almost as much as they disliked lowlanders. Brian's orderly mind puzzled over this. The woolly bullies had not banded together since the MacBrudish uprising, and that was over twenty years ago, for the purpose of defending their own lands. Still, he thought, eyeing the clearing's perimeter, watching for any movement, who can truly say what woolly bullies are apt to do? A man's as good as dead who underestimates them. He saw nothing among the trees. Brian ventured forward, his hand tightly gripping the hilt of his sword. Rounding the far wagon, he halted abruptly, struck dumb with horror. This cannot be! Dearest gods, this cannot be! Upon the ground, an arrow protruding from her breast, lay Mian's sister Blindella, looking sightlessly at both the sky and trees. A short distance away lay Mian's handmaiden, Jonna, a deep gash in her neck, her face frozen in death. The clearing began to spin. He dropped to his knees and vomited. He had seen death in battle before. He was a soldier, and a soldier understood ripped flesh, stench, and gore were a part of war. But what had war to do with two defenseless women? He took a deep breath to steady himself, swallowed hard, then struggled to his feet. He knew now this was King Jasper's train. The man had obviously removed his entire household and was making for his homeland. Brian rushed from body to body, growing more frantic and more desperate with each, until at last he found the king at the far side of the clearing. He was lying on his side, across the roots of a very tall tree, two deep gashes crisscrossing his blood-soaked chest. No, no, dearest gods, no, said Brian, dropping to his knees overcome with grief. You took my father, then my mother, then my kingdom and my crown. Why was that not enough? Why? You must tell me why! He waited for an answer to his plea, but all was silent save for the rustling of the leaves. He looked down at the king, the father of his beloved, a faithful subject and a man he had trusted. His heart ached in his chest. His throat felt like someone's hands had closed about it. 
he shut his eyes firmly to keep his tears from overflowing, and when he opened them again, it was to give his father's friend one last look and one last tribute. It was then he noticed something odd. Jasper had fallen with his right hand still clutching his sword, but in his left he held a torn piece of cloth. Bryant pried it from his hand, and upon spreading it wide, his face went ashen. Before him was something he had seen practically every day of his life. It was a piece of purple and green wool, the uniform of the Bandedonian guard. Suddenly he remembered the detachment along the road. He immediately retraced his steps, and when he came upon a section of bare ground, he saw it was a confusion of hoofed prints newly shoed. He stepped upon something hard, and, investigating, he found a broken spur trampled into the dirt. His eyes blazed fiercely, reflecting the outrage that welled within him. This was not the work of marauding woolly bullies. This was Darren's doing. Shaking his fist in the air, he cried aloud, hoping his brother might somehow hear him. I will see you pay for this, no matter how long it takes, no matter what lengths I must go to, even if it is with my final breath. I will not rest until I have avenged these deaths, and you have suffered the very same fate. This I swear to you, brother, before mother and father, and all our ancestors, and before the gods of Bandadon. He was about to leave when a single feather, soft and downy white, gently floated toward the ground in front of him, landing at King Jasper's feet. A second feather came from above and nestled in the king's hair. Still distracted by his thoughts, Brian glanced up at the tree, and there among the higher branches, and the last thing he expected to see, was Queen Inoya, pinioned by arrows. Brian stared, truly dumbfounded. But how? It was then he noticed something odd about the queen. Behind her drooped a pair of shrunken wings, and these were covered in white feathers and down. But this is impossible, thought Brian to himself. How can it be? Yet there she was, and somehow he knew the wings were hers, and she had flown to where she was. He looked again at King Jasper as he lay across the tree's roots, and though he could not confirm it as so, Bryant knew in his heart the man had died trying to protect his wife. Mian's image came to mind at once. I should not have run. I should have stayed and protected you, or taken you with me despite your protests. And with this lingering in his thoughts, he returned to the others and prepared them for what they would see. But if the prince had possessed any misgivings about exposing the boys to such carnage, he soon realized there was no need, for as Malady explained, they had seen beheadings since they were babes. Trust a mother to know her sons, thought Bryant, watching with true amazement as the boys, acting very calm and very detached, went from one body to the next, discussing the type of wound it received or the angle of blade penetration. Lots of them was dead before they knew it, announced the little one. Bryant found this most intriguing. How do you know that? By their eyes, said Noam impatiently. There ain't no fear in him. Bryant was impressed. You're sure of this? Course I'm sure. Course He's sure, stated the little one, in support of his brother. He's what you call an expert, and I'm his assistant expert. 
The prince made no attempt to dispute this, and returned to King Jasper at the edge of the clearing. So overcome by his emotions was he, for a moment he could not speak a word. Cower joined him. As a castle servant, he had never spoken to the man. Still, knowing his long history as a friend of the royal family, Cower accorded him great respect. Oh, tis tragic, uttered the retainer. So much pain and death. Bryant offered no reply. Instead, the prince unbuckled his sword belt and handed it to Cower, who looked at him with a puzzled expression. The prince bent low and unfastened King Jasper's belt, then pried the sword from his cold and rigid hand. Slaybest, Sword of the Jaspers. He had heard the tales about it many times from the man lying at his feet. Bryant wiped it clean on the grass and held it high, the blade glinting when it caught the light. Look at it, Kawa. This will be the sword that slays my brother, said Bryant in a cold, remorseless tone. And may I be worthy of the deed. He returned the blade to its scabbard, then buckled it securely about his waist. He gazed at King Jasper once more. I will see your death avenged, and your wife's, and your daughter's too. Bryant knelt and clasped his hands in front of him. This I swear to you, one king to another, in fealty and at your feet. Kawa had always treated the prince with great respect, but at the same time, when he had found it necessary, he had never been afraid to speak his mind. It troubles me to hear you talk this way, my lord. Brian's eyes remained on King Jasper. And what way is that? Vengefully, with such hatred. Brian shot him a stern, dismissive look. Nevertheless, the retainer went on. The struggle ahead may be long and arduous, and perhaps filled with even more heartache before drawing to an end. I fear you may turn bitter and forget that mercy is perhaps the greatest quality a king can possess. Brian's temper flared. You speak to me of mercy? For whom? He that stole my life and murdered all those I hold dear? How can you ask me to be merciful after what I have witnessed and endured? I, you have endured much, replied Kawa, standing his ground. Do not forget it is your compassion that sets you apart from your brother. Give in to this vengeance and you become like him. But he must pay for his crimes. And he will. The gods will see to that. Trust in them, my lord. Believe me when I tell you, your brother has sentenced himself to an eternity of suffering for what he has done. Bryant turned from the retainer and gazed at King Jasper's waxen features. It is not enough. I have made my vow, and I will not break it. My lord! No, said Bryant, looking directly at the retainer. I will hear no more. The prince glanced upward among the tree's branches, expecting to find Queen Inoya. Wait, it Wait, it, it cannot be. The woman's body was gone. What, my lord? asked Kawa. What cannot be? Queen Inoya. He stepped farther away from the trunk to have a better look. Her body was among the branches. I saw her. In the tree? Yes, yes, she was up there. And not just that, she also had... He paused. He had almost said wings. Kawa waited for him to complete his thought. When he did not, the retainer gave him a curious look. She also had... What, my lord? Uh... Many, many arrows protruding from her. This time Cowell looked, and seeing nothing, he gave the prince a sidelong glance. Seeing this, Brian shot one back at him. It's true, I tell you. Have you ever known me to make things up? He had a point. No, my lord, you have never had that kind of imagination. Brian found the remark irksome, but he thought it best to let the subject go. We should get back to the others. There is much we need to do. 
They spent the rest of the day digging shallow graves for King Jasper and his train, covering them with earth and stones to protect them from further desecration. As the light was fading, they climbed aboard the wagons and rummaged through the packs the fire had not consumed. In one they found some blankets, in another some biscuits and salted meat, which they immediately, almost shamelessly, gobbled down. The night came swiftly upon the heels of the sunset, and the wind, laden with moisture, blew in sudden angry gusts. Though the prince would have preferred to move on, he decided it best to camp for the night. Do you think that's wise? asked the retainer, gazing at the numerous graves about the clearing. Despite his intelligence, Kawa was a superstitious man. His quarters at the castle were filled with charms to ward off evil, and he could not pass the statue of any deity without genuflecting at its feet. That is to say, with so many people murdered, might we not encounter some angry spirits or some unnatural disturbance coming our way? His answer came in the form of a rainstorm that quickly trounced the clearing. Malady and the boys quickly retreated beneath a wagon, while Bryand and Cower, fighting the constant downpour, stretched a swath of canvas across the sidewall and anchored it to the ground. At length, drenched, exhausted, they crawled inside their makeshift lean-to. Oh, now you done it, now you done it, said Noam in a snarky tone. The remark surprised the prince. What? What have we done? You've gone and soaked the ground. A tine of lightning streaked across the sky, momentarily illuminating the shelter, followed almost instantaneously by a rumble of thunder. That happens when it's pouring out, rejoined the prince defensively. Perhaps if you had helped Kawa and I, we wouldn't be so wet. Fine, retorted Gnome with a scowl, sounding not at all contrite. But sleeps in your own puddle. That said, he rolled onto his side with his back to the prince, who, in turn, sighed deeply and settled down for the night. However, try as he may, he could not sleep. The things Kawa had said earlier continued to weigh heavily on his mind. Am I allowing my anger to get the better of me? Am I indeed becoming like my brother? He could not tell. In just a short amount of time, the world had proven to be a very dangerous place, complete with wolves and monsters, and not just the four-legged kind. In such a world was there room for compassion, for mercy, for enlightenment? He recalled what his brother had said to him on that fateful day on the tournament field. Your kindness will be your undoing. You are weak, do you hear? Too weak to ever be a king. And as this echoed over and over again in his mind, Bryant covered his ears and squeezed shut his eyes. He's wrong. He's wrong, Bryant told himself, all the while wondering if his brother was right. <laughs>